Hello, and welcome to this FRDH First Rough Draft of History podcast. I'm Michael Goldfarb. It's been a while, so now it's time for another edition of Bible Study for Atheists. Dr. Giles Fraser is an Anglican priest and rector of St. Mary's Newington in South London. He's also one of Britain's most well-known clerics. In 2011, at the height of the Occupy movement, Fraser was serving as canon chancellor at St. Paul's Cathedral. He became a public figure defending the Occupy protesters' right to set up an encampment around the cathedral. This, as you can imagine, led to conflict with his superiors, and he ultimately resigned. For a while after, he wrote a column called Loose Cannon for the Guardian newspaper. Fraser's background is interesting. Half his family is Jewish. Some of his ancestors have been in England since the early 1700s, which is half a century after Oliver Cromwell invited Jews to return to England from which they had been expelled in 1290. Fraser has just written a memoir about Occupy, his family, and his own balancing act between his faith and his family heritage. The book is called Chosen, Lost and Found Between Christianity and Judaism. For this edition of Bible Study for Atheists, I wanted to talk about the history and theology behind that great divergence. Where is God in all of it? I began by asking Fraser about the origins of the split. Both uh, what we've come to call Christianity and what we now think of as Judaism were both, as we know them today, responses to a trauma of the first century, and they grow up and def begin to define themselves in the centuries following the first century. And one of the things that happens is they define themselves in opposition to each other, quite substantially define themselves in opposition to each other. In the first century, there are lots of different versions of Judaism. There's the Pharisees, there's the Sadducees, the Essenes. And to start with, Christians were a sort of funny version of the Essenes who had a problem with the temple and went to the hiding in the hills uh, around the Dead Sea. It's probably no more divergent from the mainstream Christianity than that. But Christianity has the, you might say, good fortune, you might say not, of eventually merging with the, with the, the Roman Empire. But let, let me stop you there, because... The great trauma was the destruction of Jerusalem by the Roman Empire. But Jesus had already lived by then, and his disciples were already preaching about him and arguing about the meaning of his life. Absolutely, but Jesus wasn't a Christian. Jesus wasn't a Christian. His first followers, substantially not. Uh, Jesus probably never heard the word Christian. Jesus was a temple-going Jew who, like other, uh, like many other temple-going Jews, had all sorts of issues with the temple authorities in a way that the prophets had um, before him. But, you know, this whole idea of Christianity is really something that comes to the fore quite a bit later. The divorce between what came to be called Christianity and what came to be understood as certainly rabbinic Judaism, they both grow from the, in the first few centuries. And one of the key things that they do is they define themselves in opposition to each other. You write in the book, 
Was the Jesus movement predominantly Jewish, with a few rather curious outliers, or whether it was something that extended beyond the religion of the Jewish people and reached out to all humanity? And what's interesting is that one of the tenets of Judaism, which wasn't yet called Judaism, in your view, and my view for that matter, and the view of most historians, is that we, I speak as a Jew, we are separate. There are Gentiles, the rest of the world, there are Jews. How do we get from the idea of Jesus was a Jew to within a few decades of his death, his followers, who were also Jews, saying, well, actually, you know, we can, we can proselytize amongst everyone. What changes with Christianity, what becomes sort of front and centre with Christianity, is this universalism. And that really happens through St. Paul. St. Paul is a, is a Jew, but also, and this is rather crucial, is a citizen of the Roman Empire, is a Roman citizen. And that Roman citizenry gives him a sort of a, a much broader perspective, you might want to say. And he is quite keen to take Christianity and expand it. So it's no longer about the relationship between God and the Jewish people, but between God and humanity in general. So in Christ, there is neither a Jew nor Greek, rich nor poor, everybody's one. So that's one of the key moves that that happens. Um, th there's a big dispute about it. Um, the dispute, early dispute is all about circumcision. Do you have to follow the law? Do you have to be circumcised in order to be uh, a follower of Jesus? Some in this early church say no, it's there for everybody. But interestingly, some in the church say yes, this is for Jews. And if you want to be a Christian, as it were, you have to, you're Jewish, so you have to follow the law, you have to, you have to be circumcised. And so there are two sort of parallel, uh, I mean, what happens is they allow a sort of, early on, they allow a sort of two-track system to pertain. So there's what I've called the sort of the home service and the world service. There, there is um, a Jewish church, Jewish Jesus-following church, and a a Gentile Jesus-following church. In the end, the Jewish Jesus-following church, through persecution and uh, historical circumstance, disappears. And the one that really flourishes uh, is the Gentile Jesus-following church. But the okay. Jewish one is definitely there and there for a while. In Chosen, I was fascinated to read that James the brother of Jesus, was actually the one who offered the counter-argument to Paul. Do you know why he lost the argument? Yes, so James and the Jerusalem church in general were the, as it were, church of Jewish Jesus followers, and they thought that in order to follow Jesus, you, you had to be a good Jew. And that's there in some of the Gospels as well. That's in, for instance, the Gospel of Matthew, um, is very clear on this. Not one jot or tittle of the law will pass away. Uh, you have to keep it all. And that's just at the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the famous Sermon on the Mount in, in Matthew's Gospel. 
Um, so that's a very, very strong... Why did they lose the argument? Well, I suppose they lost the argument because through weight of numbers as much as anything, when the Romans destroy Jerusalem, as you rightly say, this disrupts not just the sort of mainstream Jewish uh, life at the temple, but it also disrupts these sort of fringe, slightly fringe groups like James's church. There are these Jews who are Jesus followers who are looked at uh, with suspicion by those Jews who, who don't follow Jesus, thinks the Messiah has not come, thinks this is all a mistake, and uh, eventually, as Judaism s- seeks to redefine itself following the destruction of the temple and build a fence around the Torah, there is a, a need to say who is in and who is out in a way that there really wasn't with temple worship. So that's what happens on the Jewish side. And on the Christian side... The, the, the sort of Gentile church flourishes eventually in its relationship with the, with the Romans. And uh, the Romans are still not very... The Romans still smart from this bolshy little part of the world that rebels against them and fights back. And so, you know, they're, they're, they're not too keen. I think the, the, the Christian church increasingly becomes embarrassed in front of the Romans with its Jewish credentials um i mean nobody says to the romans oh by the way you're the ones that bloody killed him you know he died on a roman instrument of torture no one's no one's actually saying that in the sort of second and third centuries when the christians now called christians are sucking up to the romans so they they start to distance themselves from these groups of jesus following jews who are still in synagogue for instance, they um, make it very clear at the Council of Nicaea that they, they want to change the date of Easter. So nobody confuses the date of Easter with any sort of Passover-y type of stuff. This is going to be very different to that. So there's lots of, there's lots of Christianity and Judaism defining themselves in opposition to each other. When I was reading the book, I was reminded a similarity with the way Buddhism became a, a force in its part of the world, in India and, and surrounding countries. Buddha didn't see himself as founding a religion, and it, he probably would have argued against it. I'm not even sure he believed in God, uh, or the gods, whatever the pantheon was. But about 200 years after his death, 150, 200 years after his death, the geopolitics of the region had changed, and you had the Mauryan Empire had, had arisen in northern India, and the emperor Ashoka found his teachings very interesting and declared that these teachings were the official religion, more or less. And that way, Buddhism began to flourish everywhere from... Sri Lanka, up into Nepal, over into Thailand and, and Burma. And I get the sense that it was the Roman Empire as a geopolitical entity that actually made Christianity the force that it became. Completely right. That's completely right. Um, without being declared the official religion of the Roman Empire. And Christianity has to do a lot of sort of intellectual somersaults in order to make that happen. 
Uh, it has to sort of transform itself really quite substantially. Because, as I said, the one absolutely clear thing is that crucifixion is a Roman death penalty. Only the Romans could have done it. There's got to be more rowing back than that. I mean, um, the, the, the Romans weren't terribly keen on stuff about turning the other cheek. The Romans weren't terribly keen on stuff about giving up money uh, in the way that Jesus talks about. So there becomes a sort of a, a rethink of Christianity. Um, if, you, if you see the Nicene Creed that comes out of the Council of Nicaea, it actually doesn't talk too much about what Jesus said. It talks about who he was. It becomes a sort of almost a personality cult and gets rid of all the sort of radical teaching, all the prophetic stuff that uh, was is so in, that there in the in the New Testament. So yes, you're right. It, the, the, what transforms Christianity out of all recognition is its relationship to the Roman Empire. Imagine, for instance, if that got done to the Essenes. The Essenes would were just as much a sort of fringe group who had arguably even more problem with the temple in Jerusalem when they fled to the, the hills in, around Qumran. But if you go to the Qumran exhibition now there and you go and look at how they're portrayed and there's sort of lots of sort of paintings of them, uh, imaginative reconstructions, they're depicted very, very, very much as Jews in, in sort of quite sort of central casting ways, as it were. But you very rarely, almost never, get these early Christians uh, depicted in the same way, though there was probably very little difference between them in terms of their self-image as Jews. Are you a Jewish Christian? Well, I'm not Jewish, so my mother's not Jewish, and um, so, you know, I, I, I don't... But, I mean, intellectually, we're talking about this, and you've offered some fairly interesting critical ideas about the first two centuries after Jesus was crucified and the process of separation away from his roots, his Jewish roots. And we should mention here that the word Jew hardly occurs in the Old Testament. It, it is a creation of, of the New Testament. That is the terminology of the New Testament. Anyway, so I, I was just curious, it, because your mother wasn't Jewish, so halakhically you could say you're not Jewish, but you're, you have a Jewish side of the family. Well, my dad's Jewish, my wife is Jewish, my, two of my children are Jewish, so... That's why I ask, are you a Jewish Christian? Well, you know, I mean, I, look, I, I'm not... One of the things that I'm quite careful not to do, and I don't want to do, is to sort of, sort of blend anything or confuse anything. Let me put it this way. There's not, I don't think there's all that much that's new in the New Testament. Not that much. The New Testament is um, mostly written by Jews, mostly with a Jewish audience. I guess I want to reclaim that reading of the scriptures, but I, I might casually describe myself as quite a Jewish sort of Christian, um, but I'm, I'm, I'm quite careful to keep the two things separate out of respect for... Um, as much as anything, out um, the sensitivities of my Jewish friends who quite rightly fear, and I understand this, the sort of Christian appropriation of Judaism. And I'm certainly not, for instance, 
interested in any of the sort of proselytizing or Jews for Jesus type of Messianic Judaism. I'm not, in, I really distanced myself quite substantially from all of that. Um, and I suppose that that's the anxiety that would make me pull back from what it is you're asking me to, uh, you're inviting me to think about. When did you feel your religious vocation? I mean, you, you read philosophy at university? I did. So, yeah, I did philosophy at university. I went into university as a pretty secular, well, no, completely secular Marxist public schoolboy cliche. I sort of thought the God stuff was profoundly uninteresting until actually I started reading some of the more vociferous 19th century atheists, particularly Nietzsche, um, who I went on and did my PhD about. God came alive to me as an issue reading uh, somebody who hated him. So that was that was what got the question going. And for years, I I think it was a sort of secret. I was fascinated by Kierkegaard and those sorts of, you know, religious existentialists. And I also, you know, my background was Anglican public school. So the the, the sort of the thing that I decanted my uh, developing interest in religion into was Anglicanism. And I think it'll always be that. But my question was about a calling. I mean, there was, and it's, it, it, but it is indeed hard to articulate. I mean, almost the the very first moment that I decided that I, I I was going to be happy and I was going to call myself a Christian, and that I was going to go to church. Almost that very same moment, I thought I always had to be a priest as well. And it's probably quite telling that it happened in a library, library in King's College, London. And I got up from the table and and I went and sought out the chaplain. And I said, how to become a priest? And that was it for me. Did you ever experience anti-Semitism because guys knew you, your dad was Jewish? The Jewish side of my family life was pretty hidden even from me. But I was, I was only vaguely aware of it. I mean, my, my father, uh, who's Jewish, um, when the bombs started falling on Golders Green, he was, as a little boy, he was taken off to a prep school in 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 Biddeford in Devon and you know it was a sort of Christian prep school and pretty much that's all he knew I, I remember him once um, my, my father uh, worked for the Royal Air Force he was an officer in the Air Force and then he became a weapon systems designer and I was a you know pretty hardcore lefty when I was younger and sometimes I'd get into furious uh, arguments with him about you know him designing weapons and all of that sort of stuff and I remember once, and I can't remember exactly how old I was, he got, uh, usually he just, he, he's quite a calm person, but he got really angry with me. And he said something about, uh, he, he talked about the need for protection, the need for security, and he said, our people. And I was like, what do you mean? I mean, I couldn't quite get what our people meant for him. And only later did I realise that what he was talking about in that argument was his sense of being Jewish and his need to be, his need to be protected and need for security. Um, Disraeli once uh, said of himself that he felt like the blank page between the Old and the New Testament. Uh, Queen Victoria had no idea what he meant, but I sort, of, I sort of felt I did. Look, you're an intellectual. I'm an intellectual. When we discuss matters of faith, where, where is faith? Where is God in the old arguments between Paul and James, 
James, who's the actual brother of Jesus, and Paul, who came a decade or so later, where and, and may or may not have ever seen Jesus in the flesh. Where is God in that, or is that just is that just human beings arguing about something? One of the things that changes uh, between Judaism and Christianity with St. Paul um, is that Christianity becomes something more about this very tricky word belief. It becomes much more about something called belief rather than, and these are, you've got to be very careful with these distinctions, by the way, but um, Christianity, um, as, a, as a product of a... Um, uh, a more universalizing instinct following the destruction of the temple it less rooted in the specifics of place and um, becomes um something more about belief and belief is the primary uh, vehicle through which uh, as it were sort of religion is expressed I, i'm i'm quite traditional in what i quote unquote believe i don't think that's the core of it i don't think god is that interested in what it is we believe or we don't believe. It's, it's a way of saying who we are. Uh, it's a way of defining identity. And um, some boundary markers are physical, some are in terms of practice, and some are what is called belief. I think God's about as interested in our belief as, as, as birds are interested in ornithology. Yes. So why have religion at all? Why not just a moral code? Well, you see, now here I get very... Here, here I'm, I sound very Christian now. And that's the that's the right question to ask me to when when you when you get me to, to to diverge. I'm not so interested in religion as a set of moral propositions. I'm interested in religion as 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 a response to the question, help me. It's a uh, acknowledgement that that the God who created the world also has a relationship with with all of humanity. This is quite Augustinian. This is, goes into quite Lutheran. Something about being saved. We're broken human beings looking for something to put us back together, and being loved by God, by the by the sort of very beating heart of the universe, is something that puts me back together. I believe puts me back together. That that is the the centre of my religious world. And, and actually, the, the human brokenness can be both emotional and intellectual. I mean, my Christianity is a Christianity that's always that of a sort of broken person in search of looking for healing. Charles Fraser, thank you very much. Thank you, Michael. Nice chat to you, dear boy. And that's all for this FRDH podcast. Again, Giles Fraser's book is called Chosen, Lost and Found Between Christianity and Judaism. It's published in Britain by Alan Lane. I want to thank Giles for taking time to speak with me. And you can hear more, lots more at the website, www.goldfarbpod.com. While you're there, make a donation to keep the podcasts coming. Please. Thanks. <laughs>